0: Hey everybody, this is Pete in almost real time. It's just a few days before episode two drops, and I just wanted to jump in here and thank everybody. The first week of the show was this week, several hundred downloads. I I couldn't be happier with those totals. I want to thank everybody who downloaded episode zero and episode one. Huge thanks to everybody who shared news about my show on their social media channels. I think that really helped give it some lift. And thanks to everybody who recommended it to a friend or two. I hope you all found something to like in those first two pieces. I was really excited to see that I had one download from Uruguay. Very cool. If you're my Uruguayan fan, shout out to you. Good times. I hope you enjoy episode two. It's one of my favorites. Okay, thanks again, everybody. And as always, good times. Hey there. Do you want to help me out with future episodes? Over on says.com. there's a link called Submit. Every few weeks, there's a new prompt there, and you can submit short stories of your own in response. There's a button right on the page. You click it, and you can record a reply right there using your computer or your phone, and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. Just head to says.com and click Submit. Let's get to the show. Friday, 1 24 p.m. This is episode 2 IR Smart. Hey, everybody, welcome. I'm Pete Brown, and this is Pete Brown Says My Creative Nonfiction Audio Experiment. I think 11 is the greatest age. It's likely the last year of pure childhood fun that you have, before the slow onset of cynicism and disillusionment as middle school starts and cliques form and tween psyches run roughshod over each other. If I could pick any age to return to, I think it would be 11, 11 years old and in the summer, when I'd leave my house on my BMX bike, mine had a really sweet shock absorber in it, just after finishing my morning Cheerios and then try to make it back home before the streetlights came on at dusk, and the hours in between just filled with baseball and soccer and building forts and running through sprinklers. When you're 11, you're just becoming aware of your own narrative in the world, and you're just starting to understand how you can influence it to your liking. When my daughter was 11, she started making her own comic book, which was called So Far So Good, and involved some heroes traveling around in a TARDIS working to overturn a global ban on pie. I wanted to sit down and chat with her about it to start this episode off, but I hadn't quite planned on how 14-year-old my daughter would be horrified by the mere mention of 11-year-old my daughter and the stories she created which is a shame because I enjoyed the heck out of So Far So Good through its very limited run. Anyway, here's a few minutes of me attempting to get a 14-year-old to merely acknowledge that she was 11 once and made up some great stories at that time. So I want to ask you about a couple things from like when you were 11.
1: No! I was very cringe back then
0: stick with me do you remember when you made your own comic book
1: okay I'm leaving no I, I'm actually no I don't wanna, I don't know.
0: alright so you made no. a comic book called no I didn't what was it called
1: no I, no. I don't remember Wait,
0: are you worried that some 14 year olds are going to find my podcast and listen to it and connect it to you I have a picture of you holding up two issues of the comic book. I don't know what you're talking about. I will splash it across social media unless you talk to me about <laughs> you this. You
1: can do that with how many followers? 50? About? How many followers do you I can have? make
0: it happen. Okay, so do you remember when you were 11 you made your own comic book? Yes. What was it called?
1: I don't remember.
0: So far, so good.
1: So far, so good?
0: Yeah. What do you remember about it?
1: I, I remember a bunch of my friends and I would do it during indoor recess because there was, there was nothing else to do.
0: There was a global ban on...
1: pie.
0: That's right. There was a global ban on pie. And do you remember how... you I your,
1: spell global right?
0: Close enough. Do you, remember, <laughs> do you remember how your characters got around? No. In a TARDIS.
1: <gasps> oh, I was a great kid.
0: Yeah, because you were a big Doctor Who fan, right? I
1: still am, yeah.
0: And so, as those issues went on, as those issues were developed, more and more Doctor Who stuff worked its way in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, I was wondering if, like, it was easier for you because you knew the Doctor Who universe and characters, and that helped you build out the story you wanted, or did you consider the comic book some, like, a work of fan fiction?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, I was 11, I can't really recall my thought process from comics I made during indoor recess in 5th grade.
0: But you loved Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, I did.
0: And it was fun making stories with those characters?
1: I don't, I don't think there were characters from Doctor Who, I think there were just certain aspects that I threw in there.
0: You I see. Well, you, you're a writer now, and this was really some <laughs> of the first real writing you were doing. Real writing. If I find those comics, can I put scans of them in the show notes for this no. episode? Thank you. No. <laughs> okay, so then uh, in sixth grade, you did NaNoWriMo.
1: Oh my gosh, Which is a national no.
0: novel writing, writing I
1: never showed you my NaNoWriMo, though.
0: Yes, you did. <clears throat> and tell me, tell me who that story was about. So you wrote a hundred pages in a month.
1: Yeah. Or does. Well, no.
0: <laughs> Tell us about the story.
1: I, I don't remember. I just think it was some sort of spinoff with Harley Quinn.
0: It was, it was a story stupid. about Harley Quinn. And you were trying to sort of redeem her character in it.
1: Yeah. Because this was before she was popular. In sixth grade, I was her for, for Halloween, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just remember seeing... How she was portrayed in comic books and thinking that it was kind of like, how could this scientist get so far off just from meeting this one person? Like, I don't think that anyone, even in superhero comics, could have that power. Yeah. And so, I just remember thinking like, this this isn't right. We gotta get her back on the good side. Yeah. And, <laughs> I don't really remember that much about the book, but I remember thinking like, this: isn't this doesn't seem really real.
0: Yeah. So... But that would, that would count as fan fiction too, right? Yeah, I For guess. Sure. <laughs> so, and, and even though you seem embarrassed by those works, right? All the writing that you do now, you benefit from having done that work before.
1: I guess. Yeah.
0: So, if you were going to write a novel today based on existing characters, who, who would who would be in them? Mm. Jughead?
1: Yeah, I'd probably do Riverdale.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. So, do you still like writing? Yes. Do you still do it? Yes. Yeah, you're really good at it. The only thing I'm really upset about is that so far, so good ended after two issues, <laughs> and we still don't know if the global ban on pie. I'm sorry gets overturned. about that. <laughs> Why would someone ban pie globally? I don't know. Who has the power to do that? I don't know. Okay. All right, so that's what I wanted to talk about. First of all, was just how, when you were starting to become a writer, how you used familiar characters, mm-hmm. and and you used them as an homage to those characters in a way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Um, but you don't want me talking about those. No. <laughs> you know, you say you were eleven. Like it was a lifetime ago. It was only three days Shh. ago, <laughs> three years ago,
1: three days ago. Sorry.
0: Okay, hold on, i got to stop this because your mother wants to get in the room. Thanks to my daughter, there at 14 years old, she just landed in really the top five most difficult interviews all time in my career, really just below when I was a political reporter in Central Texas, and I would try to get then-Governor George W. Bush to answer a question directly. Now, what my daughter was creating with her comic book and later with her short novel, would today be called Fan Fiction. That's when you take characters and elements from your favorite entertainment properties, and you put them into stories of your own design, and you publish them. Years ago, you published them in photocopied fanzines, and nowadays you publish them on the internet, the advent of which, I believe, ushered in an avalanche of fanfic. In many cases, the entities that own the characters, the fans are engaging with, tend to be more or less supportive of fan fiction, at least non-pornographic fan fiction, which I think they consider to be an homage to their property rather than out-and-out plagiarism. And so long as no one is making any money off it, which as far as I can tell, they aren't, then it's all good. I don't remember fanfiction being a thing when I was in grade school, but the internet assures me that it has existed in some primordial analog forms for much of the 20th century. What I do remember is how creativity in those early days often began with taking something familiar and then adding more onto it. I remember taking my Star Wars action figures and mixing them in with my G.I. Joes and my Green Army Men and my Lego figures and creating these very long and complex cross genre narratives. And much later, when I was a dad, encouraging my kids to do the same. Today, I want to explore the line between an homage and plagiarism. And to do that, I want to go back to when I was 11, 11 years old and in fifth grade. We lived in a yellow house, and the kitchen was covered in fern pattern wallpaper and had an orange rotary telephone mounted to the wall right next to the calendar, which hung on a single thin nail. Next to the phone was a countertop, a single wide drawer-faced phoneward. This was the junk drawer. Did you have a junk drawer in your home? Do you have one now? I always thought that everyone, at least everyone in the U.S., had a junk drawer in their home. That is, until I met my future in-laws, for whom the word fastidious is far too sloppy. I moved to a new home recently, and while we never specifically declared any one drawer to be the junk drawer, a junk drawer has nonetheless formed of its own volition. It's at the end of the counter, right near where there is a phone jack installed on the wall, which is where I would undoubtedly mount an orange rotary if landlines were still a thing in my life. Here's a short list of just some of the items that have found their way into our junk drawer. Three battery-powered LED T-lights, only one of which appears to work. An Amon flame lighter that does not seem to have enough juice left to actually create a flame. So I guess I guess it's more an aim and spark. There's a cut-open clamshell package of picture hangers. Hooks with accompanying nails, but they've spilled out across the bottom of the drawer. There's a pack of carbons from a checkbook that no longer has any checks in it. There's a pink highlighter and a yellow highlighter. There are three of those twisty, double-ended Allen wrenches that come with IKEA furniture. And there's a pack of post-it notes which is open, and the note on the top reads, Thursday Dash Furniture. And I have no idea what that means. There's much, much more junk in my drunk drawer, but I think you get the idea. Junk drawers form from the detritus of living. They hold the things that we deem to have just enough value to not throw away, but not enough value to have their own designated place in the home. The junk drawer of my childhood home was glorious. I have honestly never seen its equal. There were afternoons where I'd pull a chair over and just sit and go through it, taking things out, considering them as I turned them over in my hands, then putting them back in, just as higgledy-piggledy as they were. Here are some things I remember from my childhood junk drawer. Poker chips in various shades, as if my parents had bought a pack of poker chips and it just exploded in the junk drawer. I remember there was a keychain on the ring of which were 15 more keychains. There was a horror movie worthy ice pick, and there were probably seven to ten gas latches. So, very quick aside here as a child, I lived through the transition from having gas station attendants fill up your car to self-serve. And when this happened, my entrepreneurial parents created this invention called the gas latch, which was a length of curved steel tube which could be added to your keychain, and it hooked onto the gas pump handles and it held them open while filling the car. My parents had several thousand of these gas latches made and sold them via mail order, placing an ad in the back of National Enquirer, I believe, to do so. I remember being transfixed by the envelopes that came from other countries. Such amazing stamps! Where's Sweden? In any case, the gas latch never caught on, in part because your keys would always fall off the keychain end of it, and in part because people just didn't seem to mind holding the pump themselves. Today's pumps, as you know, have a little latch that you flip to hold them open, plus they have an auto shutoff feature that the pumps of the early 1970s did not have. But every time I flip this modern latch to hold the pump open, I think of it as kind of an homage to my parents' gas latch. Gas latch fanfic, if you will. Also, I'm more than certain that if I went to my dad's current place and dug around, I could still turn up a few hundred gas latches. On the day I'm remembering just now, which was back when I was 11, I found in the junk drawer a bumper sticker that read, I choose not to cope. The letters of the word cope spilling off the vinyl, Travis Bickle style. And I also found a button, probably two inches around, white background with green sans serif letters that read, I are smart, I are Irish. And then there was a little shamrock. I was looking at this button when my mom, who was half Irish, came into the kitchen. Can I wear this to school on St. Patrick's Day? I asked. And she said, no. And I didn't push it. Like most 11-year-olds in the pre-helicopter parent era, I heard a lot of unexplained no's and I didn't have the fervor for further inquiry. My best guess is that I assume she said no because she was going to wear it on St. Patrick's Day. Because you see... I didn't get the joke. I didn't get the joke until years and years later, one of those realizations in your adult life when you're driving at night down a highway, your family sleeping in the car around you. Oh. And once I finally got the joke, I was instantly perplexed as to how and where the button came to be in our junk drawer. And again, I'm just guessing here that it had to do with my dad. Now, my dad was really, he was far too old when I was born. He was almost 50. So he retired when I was nine years old. And one of the things he liked to do in his retirement was drive around to different bargain and junk stores in order to kill some time, as he put it. He liked to tease my mom, now and again, about things she was that he was not. Particularly being Irish, or being Catholic, or every once in a while, if he was feeling brave, about being Croatian, which was her other half, the half she didn't like to talk about. He probably found this button and bought it for 25 cents. Two bits, as he would say. That's my dad's era. They call a quarter two bits. He probably put it on my mom's dresser or something, and then by the black hole theory of junk drawers, it simply made its way there. No harm, no foul. Another super quick aside, I did recently try and ask my dad if he remembered anything about this button, but he's a 91-year-old widower now, and while he remembers a great many things, this button is not among them. In fact, without me having the button itself... I'm not sure he really understood what I was describing to him at all. He just kind of shook his head, and then he put his hand to his ear and turned off his hearing aid, which is one of the ways he signals that he's had enough conversation with you. Later that year, in fifth grade art class at the Catholic school I attended, our teacher, Miss Albrecht, passed out sheets of paper each of which had a large circle drawn on it. This was, she explained, in anticipation of a forthcoming kind of Catholic Pride Week that our school, and I think indeed the whole diocese, was scheduled to celebrate. I should note that I don't know that it was called Catholic Pride Week, but it might have been Spirit Week, or for some reason the word Jubilee keeps popping into my mind. Miss Albrecht, whom I remember as unusually kind and unusually tall, although we should point out that when I was 11, most adults seemed unusually tall, so it's quite possible she was of normal height, although her kindness was unusual in this school. She explained to us that the school was having a button contest for the upcoming Spirit Week. Every kid in school was to draw their entry on the paper she had passed out, and Father Callahan and Sister Ardeth would choose a winner, and then the buttons would get made, and every kid in school would get one you see where this is going? Because I cannot describe to you how excited I was when she gave us this assignment. You know, so excited when your leg starts to jump up and down and your hands shake a little. Because, because you know you got it. You've got the inside track to winning something big. I chose a blue marker, and though I had then, and to this day still have terrible handwriting, I wrote in the circle as legibly as I could. I are smart. I are Catholic. Boom. I didn't write boom on the button, I just said that because that's how I felt looking down at my creation, elegant in its simplicity, powerfully messaged. Would it win? Of course it would win. It has to win. It's based on a real button. I walked up to Miss Albrecht's desk, this is a full two minutes after she gave us the assignment, and I handed it to her, and she looked it over and frowned, and then she handed it back to me without saying anything and pointed towards my desk. I can't tell you how confused I was by this, but I sat down back at my desk, and I looked at my design for a long time, wondering if it was my handwriting, maybe, or my choice of the color blue. And then I remembered that the IR Smart IR Irish button included a shamrock on it. And maybe Miss Albrecht was reacting to the fact that my button was a pure text treatment. That had to be it. So I thought for a minute, and then I took out a brown crayon, and below the words IR Catholic, I drew a cross. And then to be on the safe side, I drew two smaller crosses, one on each side of the first cross. So it was basically like a mini crucifixion scene right there at the bottom curve of my button. I walked it back to Miss Albrecht. And this time, she looked at it and sort of whipped it back into my hands. What? I asked. Here's the part about the story that I remember in the most detail. I remember Miss Albrecht leaning down to my level, which again... She's possibly unusually tall, so it seemed like a long way for her to lean down. And then saying in my face, I are smart. I are Catholic. Just like that, like the copy was in fact a question. But still, somehow, remember, I'm just 11 and still not understanding that the original button was a joke. Instead, my 11 year old brain thought, yeah. That doesn't sound right at all. As if the original copy, IR Smart IR Irish, was simply a mistake that slipped past the Button Factory proofreaders and into production. So, back at my desk, I took my blue marker and carefully colored over the word R in each sentence, so it was like a blue square. And then, like a medal winning athlete stepping up to the podium, I wrote the word am on top of the blue boxes. So, my button now read, I am smart. I am Catholic. Crucifixion. I have to admit to feeling like this was an improvement. It was more powerful in its declaration. Now it was somehow even more certain to win. Yet when I took it back to Miss Albrecht, she shook her head in what I was learning to recognize as disappointment, put the paper on the pile of other button designs that had been turned in, and told me to go to my desk and read something. I was forever disappointing my teachers in ways I never fully understood. Still... I figured whatever her problem was, she'd get over it when Sister Ardeth and Father Callahan picked it as the winner. So you can imagine my surprise a few days later when Sister Ardeth, during morning announcements she made over the PA, announced the name of the winner, and it was not me. It was some girl in the 8th grade. And I thought, what? What a rip-off! How'd I get so ripped off? This is a total rip-off! I mean, didn't they know that mine was based on a real button? And then I paused. And for the first time, I thought, maybe they did know. I mean, Father Callahan was like the most Irish guy I knew. If anyone was going to have an IR Smart IR Irish button, it was probably him. And maybe, despite the corrections I had made to the original copy, my version was too close to the original. Maybe they thought I was indeed a copier, a copycat one who copies. Maybe I was going to get in trouble, even though I didn't win. Oh my god, maybe, maybe they were calling my mom. Maybe my mom was on the orange rotary right now, looking at the button in the junk drawer and saying, I believe I do know where he got this idea. Maybe spilled quickly and with force when you're 11, confused and a little bit scared. I kept my head down for the rest of the week. I was worried that maybe Sister Ardeth would see me in the bus line and it would remind her that she was supposed to call my mom and tell her about this dirty business. Don't look up, I'd tell myself. Don't make eye contact. Looking down is how I remember the end of this story, too. The following Friday, as we left the classroom, the teachers gave us each a copy of the winning button and told us to wear it to school on Monday. It was about the size of a half dollar, or four bits, as my dad would say. And I just held it in my hand, not even looking at it until I got out of school and onto the bus, and then looked down at it. It had a yellow background with maroon letters, which was our school colors, by the way. I'd, I probably should have thought of that. And the button read Catch that Catholic spirit. Catch that Catholic spirit. which is a nice line, but to be fair, was awfully similar to a major national campaign that Pepsi Cola was running at that time, the Catch That Pepsi Spirit campaign, which was on TV, on the radio, There was even a major contest to spell it out with letters that you would find under each bottle cap, but no one could ever find the R. And I just couldn't understand how the heck my button, based on a real button, could lose to this. Why was it that my button was copying, but this, this blatant ripoff, this was just fine? I mean, don't nuns drink Pepsi? Doesn't... Father Callahan have a TV in that weird little house behind the church that he lives in. And I'm riding the bus, and I'm looking down at this button in my hand, and it's just dawning on me, slowly, that it's as if... It's as if the Catholic Church is somehow out of touch with reality. 11 years old I was riding the bus that day. I remember getting off the bus, walking home with my two sisters. I had two sisters in school with me at that time, both older. And as we were coming into the house, one of them saying, Pedro, don't lose your button. We gotta wear the buttons to school on Monday. That's exactly what they sound like, by the way. And I looked back down at the button still in my hand. And I looked up. And I saw the junk drawer. And I walked over to it and I opened it up. And I threw this button in. Because I realized that I am a quarter Irish. And should this original button be believed, that makes me at least a quarter smart. Or two bits, as my dad likes to say. Pete Brown says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. If you like the show, can I ask you to take five minutes and leave a review on iTunes? More than anything else you can do, this will really help get these stories in front of more people. If online reviews aren't your thing, maybe just tell a friend or two that there's this quirky new podcast that they should check out. You can read an essay version of today's main story at PeteBrownSays.com, where I also put a featured image for each show. Usually something that was in the episode itself. The written essays usually have some additional materials and content that was cut from the audio production, as well as links to other things mentioned in the show. Finally, you can follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com backslash Pete Brown Says, on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Brown Says, and also over on Medium at Medium.com slash Pete Brown Says. Music in the show comes from a variety of sources. The opening and interstitial music is by Brian Hake. Additional interstitials are by Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, as performed by their now defunct band, Delicious. Additional background tracks and sound effects come from the websites Audionautics.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, and Freesound.org, and are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes on PeteBrownSays.com for complete attributions. no Time. Flea asked me if I liked Pete Brown. I said yes. That was a f-ing lie.